0: It's wonderful to be with all of you today. We have a wonderful crowd, and we appreciate you for being here. We have visitors from other places, other congregations, and even perhaps from the community, and we want to say welcome, and we're so glad you're here. The last time that I spoke, I announced that on that day, I had planned to start a series on the seven I Am Statements of Jesus as found in the Gospel of John. And on that particular day, we had 36 folks that were missing because of COVID, so I thought I would hold off until the next time that I taught and everybody would be back, and I'll start this series, and I do that today on the seven I Am statements of Jesus. And the first one that we want to notice is, I am the light of the world. Now, this is not the first one that Jesus actually said. In fact, I believe the first one is when Jesus said, I am the bread of life. So I'll just say this in advance. I'm not sure the order that I will take these, and I may not talk on all seven, but at this point in time, I am actually planning on doing so. But today, I want to talk about the one that we all know, the one that is very familiar to us, the one that said, I am the light of the world. In John chapter 8 and verse 12, then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Just to kind of set this up, just before Jesus made this statement, this great statement, you remember that Jesus was standing there or kneeling there, we don't know exactly, as it all began. But the Bible says that the scribes and Pharisees took a woman to him that was caught in the very act of adultery. I'm not going to go into that story in great detail. want to make a couple of points because this happened right before Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. And they brought a woman to him and said, what are you going to do about this woman? They said, in our law, it states that caught in the act of adultery, she was an adulteress, she should be stoned to death. What are you going to do about it, Jesus? And Jesus knelt down, and I don't know what he wrote. Nobody does. But he took his finger and he wrote something in the dirt. And then he said let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Now, the reason that I bring that up is because sometimes people, oftentimes people use that statement in a general sense. In other words, everybody sins, everybody makes mistakes, so after all, don't worry about this person or that person because, you know, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. But that's not the context that's found in the original, and that's not what Jesus meant. The context in the original language literally states, let him who is without this sin cast the first stone. I made that point because I want to make another one. Isn't it true that's kind of fitting? Aren't sometimes we in that category, we fall under that category, we fall under that idea that sometimes we're the most critical and the hardest on people who are guilty of the very same things that we're guilty of? It's kind of like you can't handle your own guilt. The guilt is overwhelming because of something that you're struggling with, a sin that you're struggling with. So you become extra harsh and extra critical on someone else that's guilty of the very same things. That is true. All right, well, at some point after this, Jesus gave this I am statement. He said, I am the light of the world. Now, going back to that phrase, I am, we must go back to the Old Testament for just a moment and remember when God said, I am. When God said that in Exodus chapter 3, it was a very pivotal point in redemptive history. You remember that Moses was to be the deliverer, and uh, Moses was to be the one to deliver the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. And you remember what what Moses said? When God instructs him and tells him what he's going to do, Moses says two things. Number one, he says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? That's number one. But number two, he said, when I go to your people and I say to them, the God of our fathers has brought me to you, when they say, what is his name? What am I going to say? And this is what God said in response. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am is his name. And in making that statement, God discloses who he is and what he's like. What is God like? He is eternal. He is unchanging. He is self-existent. He's infinite. He's glorious in every way. And above and beyond all created things, yes, he is God, all right, we understand that, they understood that, but what about when Jesus uses that term, what about when Jesus applies the statement or the name I am to himself, what does he say, in John chapter 8 and verse 56, Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. They said this in response in verse 57, wait a minute, you're not even 50 years old and you're saying you've seen Abraham and then Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. I got to tell you, I don't know how many times in my lifetime I've referred to this passage to prove that Jesus has always existed, that Jesus was not a created being, that he has always existed and that is 100% true. But when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, it means more than just always existed. What does it mean? It actually means he's divine. He's saying, I am eternal. I am pre existent. I am infinite. I am perfect. He's saying the words, I am God. Now I want to make a point too about the Godhead. Sometimes people have a hard time grasping the concept. Of how God says he is God and Jesus says he is God. And also grasping the concept when the Bible says there's three that bear record in heaven. And we know who they are. There is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And sometimes people say, what it is, it's one great big being in three parts. No. It's three separate personages working together as one. Three in the Godhead. They would have understood, though, when Jesus says, I am, they knew he was saying, I am God. He's saying, I'm greater than Moses because I'm the God of Moses. I have life in myself, and I give life to others. And the Jews knew that that he was making such a claim, and that's why in John chapter 8 and verse 59, it says they immediately took up stones to kill him. So. The seven I am statements in John may best be understood as falling under and echoing this ultimate claim that God or that Jesus Christ is also the God of Israel. I'm the light of the world. They knew exactly what he meant. All right. So to understand all of this, I know that we're very familiar with the statement, I'm the light of the world. But maybe we might be a little unfamiliar And how it was that it was received by those religious leaders. In doing so, though, let's talk about the location. Let's go back to what happened, the specific setting where Jesus spoke these words. And what we do is we go to John chapter 8 and verse 20. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury. Now this sets up everything. Because Jesus doesn't just speak these words just out of thin air or out of nowhere. He's capturing the moment. I love that about the preaching of Jesus. He's unlike us. He could go to a setting, he could see things, he could notice the people that are there and preach the perfect sermon. There were people in the treasury. Now, the treasury is the part of the temple that's found in one of the courtyards called the court of the women. And in this, when people would come to the temple, they would give money. And there were 13 receptacles in the treasury area in the court of the women. Now, they were open, historians say, there were a big opening at the top. They funneled down into a narrow opening, and people would go to the treasury area, and they would drop their money down into that receptacle, and it would go into a particular container. And that's how people gave in the treasury. So we're talking about in the courtyard of the court of the women. Fowler says this. There was a system of courtyards that surrounded the temple facing the sanctuary and facing the court of the priests or the one we always refer to as the outer court. Beyond that, there was the court of men. Beyond that was the court of the women. And beyond that was the court of the Gentiles. Now, you know what's interesting about the court of the Gentiles? People would go there, and actually I've read historians that say this, there were merchants there, and basically those merchants were there so people can do their religious shopping. Why would they do that? If they were coming for an animal sacrifice, or they needed an animal for the sacrifice, it was purchased in the court of the Gentiles. Also something else. There were money changers there. Because people that came from everywhere, they couldn't take foreign currency and put it in the treasury. So there had to be money changers to exchange that currency and have it in the proper denominations. Therefore, they could put it in the treasury. That was in the court of the Gentiles. But what we're talking about is we're talking about the court of the women. It was a place also where the widow was there that Jesus remarked. And you remember that she gave her last two coins... And Jesus said when she gave two mites that what she gave was greater than all the others combined because they gave out of their abundance, but she gave out of her necessity. That was in the court of women. That was in the treasury. That's where Jesus is standing right now. Okay. Historians tell us also there would have been tens of thousands of people right there in that courtyard during this time. I tried to wrap my mind around tens of thousands of people. And the reason they were there was they were there for the Feast of the Tabernacles. And by the way, we'll get back to Feast of the Tabernacles in just a moment. I don't know how what it looked like. I'm just saying this. It was a jam-packed audience of people. I don't know how many were there. Historians say tens of thousands, but there's a ton of people. He's got this enormous audience. And Jesus is going to preach this sermon so here's where they were in the treasury that jesus is going to say these words all right here we go in john chapter 8 and verse 12 at some point in time after he had dealt with that situation with the adulterous woman in john 8 and verse 12 then jesus spoke to them again saying i am the light of the world you know jesus never said i am a light in the world He said, I am the light in the world. You know, a rabbi could have said, I'm a light in the world. And somebody that leads somebody out of darkness. Also, you as a child of God, you as a Christian, you know what you are? You are a light in the world. In fact, Jesus calls us salt of the earth and lights of the world. Here's the difference. The true light is Jesus, not us. We are luminaries broadcasting the light of Christ to the world so they could see their way out of darkness. That's the difference. We don't make the statement that we are the light. Only Jesus can do that. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And the amazing thing is this. They knew exactly what he meant. When he said, I am... He's saying, I am God, and they got that and infuriated them. They wanted to stone him to death. Okay, Number two, he says, the light of the world. You know what he's saying? I'm the Messiah. I am God, and I am the Messiah. And that's what that means, those two things. And they hated him for it, those that rejected him. He is the Messiah. He is the true light. And, you know, they would have understood about the messianic promises about Jesus Christ and about the Messiah. And incidentally, as a side note here, they believed that there would be a Messiah. They just rejected the one they got. They rejected the one that God sent. They rejected Jesus, but they believed in a Messiah. How did they do that? How do I know that? Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. That is the prophetic account in the book of Isaiah about the Messiah. That specific passage is fulfilled in in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 18. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will declare justice to The Gentiles. Incidentally, who are the Gentiles? What is meant by Gentiles plural? The world. That's what Jesus was claiming. He's the fulfillment of what they already knew and always have known. Interestingly, though, you know, Isaiah calls him the servant, a servant. Jesus refers to him also as a servant. In Matthew 20 and 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give life, a, give his life a ransom for many. This passage here is the prophetic fulfillment that Jesus would be a servant. He would die for the sins of the world as the Messiah, but also he would be empowered by the Holy Spirit. You know, I don't really understand everything it means when. We've made the statement over our lifetimes, over and over again, that Jesus had the Holy Spirit without measure. Now, the apostles had the miraculous measure of the Holy Spirit, but they had it within measure. Jesus had it without measure. Our Messiah, when he came to this earth, was going to be a servant and die for the sins of the world, but he had his spirit. He had the spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, without measure. He was empowered by such. To do what? To be a light to the world. Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 5. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out. Who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it. Who gives breath to the, the people on it. And spirit to those who walk on it. I the Lord have called you into righteousness. And will hold your hand, I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. Again, the light of the world. Isaiah 42 and verse 8. I am the Lord, that is my name. And my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. So, the Messiah would be a light, plural, to the nations or to the world. He would be the Messiah. One more passage, Isaiah 49 and 6. Indeed, he says, it's too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. And by the way, the very next verse says this in the King James Version, Isaiah 49 and 7, it says, the redeemer of Israel and his Holy One. So, He's God. I am. He's infinite. He's unchanging. He has always existed. He will continue to always exist. He is all of that. What else, though? When He was on the earth and before His sacrifice, when Jesus came to be the servant to be sacrificed for the people... He became our Savior. Jesus is our Savior now. But he's not a servant anymore. He was a servant while he was on the earth. Now he is the King, and we honor him, and we serve him. He is our shepherd, and we are the sheep, and we follow him. That's what Jesus is. But Jesus is only our Savior while the life still exists in us in the world. Because on that last day when God puts an end to all of it, he no longer will be the Savior. He will be the judge. So that's why Christians, that's why we serve him as our king now. We've obeyed the gospel. He died for our sins. But he's not the servant anymore. He's the king and we honor him. So let's talk about light, for example. Light is a magnificent metaphor. And uh, it's the active power that dispels darkness. So let's notice Jesus is the light of truth that dispels the darkness of falsehood. He is the light of wisdom that dispels the darkness of ignorance. He is the light of holiness that dispels the darkness of impurity. He is the light of joy that dispels the darkness of sorrow. He is the light of life that dispels the darkness of death. That is a wonderful uh, picture of Jesus. And he has the name I am. I am the light of the world. Claiming to be God and also the Messiah. Psalm 27 and verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Okay. So they understood that. They understood what he meant. My question is this. When he calls himself the light of the world. Why here? Why now? Not out of the blue. I think he was seizing the moment. I think he was capitalizing on the moment. What do I mean by that? You know, Jesus had done that many times. Like, for example, can't you just picture in your mind's eye when Jesus is preaching and all of a sudden he gives the parable of the sower? Maybe he looked over there and saw a cornfield. And said, Behold, a sower goes forth to sow. And then he says, and he talks about the various kinds of soil. They could look exactly to that place and know exactly what he meant. What was he doing? He was seizing the opportunity. He was capturing the moment like he did so many times. And that's exactly what he's doing right now. I said we'd get back to this. Here we go. The time was the Feast of the Tabernacles. That was the ritual feast that happened back under the Law of Moses and what they did. And at the Feast of the Tabernacles began, and by the way, I don't know what it looked like. So this picture that I'm going to show you for what it's worth just gives you an idea of the descriptive historian's words about it. I don't know what it looked like. But there were candelabras that were placed throughout the court. And what they would do is they would light them and they would burn all night long. In fact, historians say they literally filled the court of women with the capability of light. Every night, they would go around and light these large candles. In fact, it was also called by the Jews, the illumination of the temple. And the reason they did this was because the Feast of the Tabernacles was a celebration of the 40 years that the children of Israel were in the wilderness. How were they led? By light. They were led by light, a pillar of fire, and also a lighted cloud. That's how they knew where to go. That's how they were guided by God. So the Feast of the Tabernacles, it was a particular celebration of that time. So how did they do it? They would put these candelabras up, and they would light them, and they would burn, and it would give light, illuminating light in the area. There's some interesting descriptions by historians. Listen to this. Ancient historians who describe it as a stunning vision described it as a diamond in the midst of the city of Jerusalem. Another said it was like floodlights coming across its perimeter walls. Another said every night they were lit and the temple became a flashing diamond, a symbol of the pillar of the fiery light and cloud that led them in the wilderness. And some even said, that they could be heard by quoting the words of Isaiah 42 and 6 and Isaiah 49 and 6, which says, I will be a light to the Gentiles. All right. I can just picture Jesus standing there. I don't know. Maybe at the time that they were lighting those candelabras. And maybe he said, he saw them lighting them. He says, oh, I'm the light of the world. Or maybe it's even better. Maybe he was there earlier when they were lighting them. But maybe now they've gone out. Maybe they're extinguished. And maybe Jesus looks at one of those extinguished candelabras and says, I am the light of the world and I never go out. And if you follow me, you will have the light of life. Maybe that was the setting. Maybe that's what, how it was when Jesus said those words. I am the light of the world, and I don't go out. If you follow me, the light will never go out. You will never walk in darkness, but you will have the light of life. It's truly a profound moment. So what does it mean to follow me? What did Jesus mean by that? I got to tell you, there's folks in the world that have all manner of ideas of what it means to follow Jesus. I'm going to do something, though. I've never really done this. I'm going to just look at the word in its ancient usage. The word follow. The same word that Jesus used, let's look at the ancient usage of this word. It's used as a soldier follows a commander. It's used as a slave follows his master. It's used as a sinner turns to follow the law. It's used as a student follows a teacher. To be a follower of Jesus means to give your life totally to him. That's what it means to follow Jesus. You know, the antagonism when Jesus said this arises immediately. He says, I am the light of the world. I'm God and I'm the Messiah. I'm the fulfillment of all the prophetic accounts about the Messiah. That's me. I'm the light of the world, not just the light in the world. I am the light of the world, and I never go out. And you know what they said? Look at what they said in response to this. The Pharisees therefore said to him, You bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Interesting. You know what they were referring to? They were referring to their law that states you can't make an assertion You can't make a statement and you can't make a claim if it cannot be substantiated by two witnesses at least. That's what they're saying. Wait a minute. You say that you're God. You say that you're the Messiah. No, we're not going to believe that because you bear witness of yourself and you can't do that. Your witness is not true because no one else can confirm it. Had to be confirmed by at least two witnesses. Notice the Lord's response though in John chapter 8. 14 through 18. Listen to this. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone. But I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of man, of two men is true. Notice, I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bear, bears witness of me. There's your two right there. There's your two right there. What's amazing to me is their response. Then they said to him, where's your father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. These words spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. Folks, this is how unbelief operates. Please get this. This is how unbelief operates. It's really true. Unbelief operates in this way because unbelief never has enough proof. Never. It never has enough proof. If somebody is gonna say, I don't believe because of rejection, there's never enough proof to change that. Never. Unbelief never has enough proof. It should have been enough. Jesus had power over sickness and death and blind eyes, He had powers over nature. He had all the wonderful things in which he said. In fact, the Bible says he spoke as one with an authority like no one had ever spoke before. They should have known. But they didn't believe. You know why? Again, because unbelief never has enough proof. It just doesn't. In John chapter 7, verse 17... If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it's from God or whether I speak on my own. Notice that phrase right there. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know know concerning the doctrine. Now, I'm going to tell you, this tells me that you will know the doctrine and you will know it's true if you are willing to know that it's true. Have you ever heard somebody say, how do you know for sure? There's all kinds of opinions out there and all kinds of different beliefs out there. How do you know? How do I know? How do I know that I'm following the word of God? Jesus said these words, you're going to know the will of God. You're going to know the doctrine and you're going to know that it's true if what? You're willing. You got to be willing. You have to go into it with a willing mind that when the word of God tells us something about Jesus and tells us something about which we should do and practice, if we have a desire and a will to know, we will know. You know, it's a safer condition if unbelief is because of ignorance, okay? In other words, if I'm a person that doesn't know anything about the scriptures and my unbelief is because of ignorance because I've never heard it before and the evidence has not been brought to me, Guess what? No problem. If my unbelief is because of ignorance, I still have hope because I just need the information and then therefore I can change and I can believe. But if a person's ignorance is because of unbelief, uh uh-oh, not good. Because you know what that is? That's willful ignorance and willful rejection. So if a person doesn't believe yet, they just need the information. That's great, but you have to be willing. And Jesus is speaking to a Pharisaic audience that were not willing. They were absolutely not willing. You know, I'm going to tell you, we could pick up the Bible, we could pick up the scriptures, and we know it to be true. I've had people say, "Say to me, how do you know it's true?" Well, it's in the Bible. Yeah, but how do you know it's just a book because it's in the Bible? And by faith, I know that's fact. No problem, right? But think about this. I did not stand in the midst of Jesus himself and see him perform these miracles. I don't really know for absolute certain, but this is just kind of my assumption. I would imagine if I had a willing heart and I had the right heart, I would have believed in Jesus right then and there. If he'd have had me, You know, like my dad used to say, you know, he had all the votes. Absolutely. If I saw all that with my own eyes, I think I would have followed him. I think it would have been easy to follow Jesus when he would raise the dead and perform the miracles that he performed. I would think that's enough. But those people back then, they saw all that evidence. They heard all of his teaching. And they said no. Their unbelief was not because of ignorance. Their ignorance was because of unbelief. That's willfully ignorant. That is willful rejection. So where does that leave us today? I'm so thankful for all that Jesus has done. I'm so thankful for... The sacrifice that he made, I'm so thankful that he was willing to empty himself, as the Bible says. Emptied himself. I'm so thankful that Hebrews 12 and 2 says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. I'm so thankful for that too. Where does that leave us? Where that leaves us is our obedience to the word of God. So, are you willing? If you are willing, Jesus said Himself, you will know the doctrine. You will know the truth if you're willing. Are you here under the sound of my voice and you're not a Christian? Let me ask you this are you willing? Got to have a willing heart. Jesus has brought all the evidence. And what did Jesus say when He was here? Jesus gave us the plan of salvation. Jesus says that a man must first believe. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. You have to believe with the force to obey. That's not just accepting facts about Jesus. That's saying, I believe to the point that I'm going to follow him and do exactly what he says. What else did he say? Luke 13 and 3. I tell you no, but except you repent, you will all likewise perish. We have to change our life. It begins with a changing mind. We change our life, and it leads to the best part. It changes our relationship with the Lord, and that's great stuff. What else did Jesus say? Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father, which is in heaven. And the Bible tells us what that confession is. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Those things are leading up to, pointing toward the the point of salvation, But it's when we go down to the waters of baptism that we contact the blood of Jesus and have our sins washed away. 1 Peter 3.21 says, The like figure wherein even baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. To be baptized into Jesus Christ, have your sins washed away, and secondly and wonderfully, Jesus himself will add you to his church the one that died for your sins, the one that now is our King and Savior. If you've never taken those steps, we would encourage you to do that. We'd love to assist you in that. Maybe you have, and maybe there are things in your life that aren't what they should be. Maybe you have some things that you need to correct, public things perhaps. If that's the case, then repent of those things, confess those things, and we'll pray with you and for you, and God will forgive and restore. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by The Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information, or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 730 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.